You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. And I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. It's October 21st, and I've got a great show for you this week. A bit of a haunted show, as it were. And I'm not just saying that because it's Halloween and it's coming up. Getting closer. It's that month. No. I've actually had a lot of mysterious issues with this episode. And none more than in Down to the Crossroads, which is going to be at the tail end of the show, or the second half of the show, however you want to look at it. Aaron and I sat down to record, and trouble ensued. I mean, really, we just can't, (laughs) could not get working right. The entire thing was a monster. And to be honest, I might actually be a day late because of that. Uh, It's Technology has just thrown reliability out the window on this one. So we're going to we're gonna adjust courses we have to, and we're going to make this happen, and somehow I'm going to get what I need to get this out to you. <laughs> um, but first, next week, next week, is the Greater Magic episode. These things only come once a year. So excited. The High Priestess of the Church of Satan, Magistra Peggy Nadramia, and Citizen Naya Sema join me on a full moon to talk about greater magic. And what they brought to the table was very interesting. String? Very fun. Yeah. And uh, poignant. Uh, And I gotta say, I mean, really, really, really amazing women. A lot of fun to talk to. And this isn't just lip service. You will tell when you hear it next week. (laughs) They're amazing. And they know what they're talking about. And they've got a lot of history between the two of them uh, in magic. And, uh, you know, that informs you when you're doing stuff like this. So uh, it it benefits us all hearing it, and I cannot wait to present it to you next week. Woo! All right, and I finished, finished, finally finished editing Satanists on Satanic Cinema episode. And this one is going to be Blue Velvet. And I was joined by Citizen Dave Ingram and Citizen Matt Ingram two very fine gents, and we had a hell of a good time watching this show, riffing on the show, and then, you know, kind of closing out our thoughts and stuff. It was it was a whole lot of fun. So the, the episode itself was edited, it was uh, put together, and it was sent to the, <laughs> I don't know, the monster workers in Dracula's castle, to send out to Amazon MP3 and iTunes and Google Play and every other crazy place that it can be sold. As soon as it starts appearing there, I put together this amazing little promo for it and I'll be releasing it. Ah, this is another one of those things that I am literally at the mercy of technology to bring you what I'm really, really excited about. And this is just one of the four that I already have taken care of. 
and ready to go. So I'm going to be knocking these out once a month, and I hope, I hope you take kindly to them, because they're a lot of fun. And it's going to be available really, really soon. And this week, oh my god. Okay, so this week was my vacation. And rather than going down to see a buddy of mine because I couldn't afford to, I stayed in the in the area. And we went hiking, and we went and saw some movies, and, you know, just sort of hung out around the house. And I... If, if all I'm doing is hanging out around the house, I'd rather be at work. I mean, I, I gotta be honest. I mean, it was fun because, you know, I, I had a day with just my son, which was amazing. We went to um, uh, hang out. And then uh, I spent the day just with my wife, which was fun. Uh, and then we sort of made root beer with the kids and, you know, had like soup and little bread bowls at home and did our best to watch as many Halloween type movies as possible which was always a lot of fun and I finished up editing a lot of things so that was always nice but still for a vacation I felt it lacking and I felt like there could have been more detachment from work and I mean I say work but what I do for fun is the same as what I do for work and that's work on websites and work on um uh, just digital manipulation. Uh, one thing that I did work on that I was really happy and excited about was Art on You Studio's new website. Go to artonyou.com to check that out. Storm gave me uh, an image and some graphics of what he wanted the website to be. And so I implemented that, added my own flavor and twist on some of it. But ultimately, we came up with something that we were both very happy with and we think will serve him well into the future. And really, when it comes to designing anything, um, be it a website or an ad or a package, then the best that you can do is one, make it usable so that people actually go to it and, you know, enjoy what they're seeing and doing. And two, make sure the client's happy. And in this case, both, I think, uh, both were a hundred percent. So, you know what? You never always end up with exactly what you want. But you always end up with something that works brilliantly. And ArtOnYou.com was one of them that I think just worked brilliantly. And now, <laughs> we traded work, so I get a little something from them. And I cannot wait! So on my forearm, I have this devil on fire. On my left. That's right. And so on my right forearm, he's going to hook me up with an angel on fire. Uh, and like, you know, the old Danzig tune, devil on my left. Angel on my right. Make no mistake, I'll be with tonight. That is what I'm getting. Very, very excited. And the one on my right is going to be sort of pinup-esque on fire with uh, inspiration from my wife, which is going to be nice. It's not going to be exactly her because that would be kind of creepy. <laughs> but it'll be, eh, you know, a little touch, maybe in the eyes, maybe in the lips, hopefully in the breasts. <laughs> in good ways is what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, and uh, now let's talk about the show, because I do have a really great show for you. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to bring you life after death through the fulfillment of the ego. And this is actually a chapter in the Satanic Bible. I'm just going to talk about it for a little bit. In Infernal Informant, Pope names seven new saints as Vatican seeks to revive faith in places where it's lagging. Okay, so I'm not a religious guy. I'm certainly not a Catholic religious guy. Guy. But I wanted to bring this because I think there's going to be some interesting uh, little notes that I would like to hit 
<laughs> on this article. And rogue climate hacker dumps 100 tons of iron into the Pacific Ocean. So I'm going to talk a little bit about climate change. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, eco-manipulation. And uh, yeah, that should be a lot of fun. And then in Down to the Crossroads, Aaron sits down with me, and we have episode four, Haunted episode four. It was a lot of fun to record when we finally finished recording it, and when I actually finally finish putting it together, it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> Blood in my eyes. She did an amazing job of collecting some really, really great songs that were not only... Uh, you know, made sense to the month that we're in, but also just quality songs from a bygone era that I just loved to hear for the first time. And every single one of them was a first for me. And so I'm hoping they are for you too. And even if they're not, they're great songs to listen to, so you'll enjoy it regardless. But one thing I did not do during that was pimp out. Uh, okay, that's maybe not the best word to use. Erin, uh, uh, you can find her on Twitter at ChelseaGirl19. And she has a new Facebook page, if you haven't noticed. So if you're a 9 cents listener, get on over there to Down to the Crossroads. There is now a community forum for the brilliance of music that she provides. And Down to the Crossroads page continually puts out these uh, songs, these little gems, as I like to think of them, of times that are long gone, of music that should never be gone. So always check in, and that's just literally facebook.com slash down to the crossroads. Go check it out and like her page and follow everything that she does because it's all really wonderful. And then I know I've been saying, uh, I'm going to be doing a bizarre, bizarre, but you know what I'm going to do it today? Ask a quick question and get a story as an answer. Yeah, this happens to me more often than I like, period. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about it for a little bit. And that's going to be the show. So sit back, relax. Another Devil's Advocate starts right now. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? They don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Life after death through fulfillment of the ego. Man is aware that he will die someday. Other animals, when nearing death, know they're about to die. 
but it's not until death is certain that the animal senses his coming departure from this world. And even then, he does not know exactly what is entailed in dying. It is often pointed out that animals accept death gracefully, without fear or resistance. This is a beautiful concept, but one that only holds true in cases where death for the animal is unavoidable. That was the first paragraph from Life After Death Through Fulfillment of the Ego in the Satanic Bible. Anton LaVey touches on a couple really, really interesting concepts in this, mainly concerning with uh, compare and contrast. So, the uh, traditional Judeo-Christian cultures who supposedly celebrate life, worship death, and they even say that... Um, uh, suicide, killing oneself, is a sin, but then, I mean, for Christians anyway, their Savior knew he was going to die, and so passive aggressiveness in my book is the same as suicide. Um, Islamic bombers, um, they strap a, a vest to their chest, and though suicide itself is, is abhorred, uh, sacrificing yourself for the greater Islamic good perceived by whatever church or fanatic organization, is seen as a good thing. So they celebrate martyrs. Satanism, eh, not so much. <laughs> In fact, not at all. I mean, the and what I do appreciate about this uh, chapter here is that Anton LaVey does address suicide near the end of it. And he brings it to a point that because we know, and I've spoken to this many times, because we know that life is a certainty and that death is an unknown, that we must celebrate the here and now because really this is the only shot that we have realistically at really having a vital existence. I mean, if, if we're to... I mean, the entire <laughs> religion of Satanism is centered around indulgence and vengeance, and you can't do any of those if you're dead. Uh, but what he does do is is really speak to suicide from a sort of offhanded note that unless life irreversibly is so bad that it is no longer something that you can endure, I'm paraphrasing here, then it is frowned upon but understood. And that's really the only, you know, that's the only gray area, I think, that is touched on in this entire chapter. <clears throat> when it's brought to Eastern religions, I mean, it's all about the ego, right? I mean, if you're a Christian faith or, or, or a Judeo-Islamic Christian faith, then you're throwing your ego out the window because there's no greater ego than God, and we are all, in their eyes, subservient to he, she, it. In Eastern religions, they tell you that you're throwing the ego out, all the while trying to sort of beef it up by meditating longer than anyone else or going without something longer than anyone else. The sacrifice of yourself, the, 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 the sacrifice of the vital existence, as it were, becomes sort of a, uh, a placeholder for the ego. You are greater, more powerful, because you could do this. And that, in that way, 
you're sort of fulfilling this sort of backhanded ego. Satanism believes it's important to have a healthy ego. Let me say that again. A healthy ego. And, and one thing that, another little note that I thought was fascinating that Anton LaVey brought up in this was that no matter where you are, in, in all walks of life, you're going to have people that are braggarts, that have this sort of overinflated ego. Um, we would refer to it as counterproductive ego, this counterproductive sense of self-worth. And you know what? You do even see it in satanic circles. It's just, it's a natural part of human being development. You are supposed to get past that part and realize your own, you know, uh, capacities and uh, work harder at overcoming any deficiencies that you feel you have. But some people don't do that. They just never really develop. Um, they're really near the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, <laughs> as it were. And because they're in all walks of life, we recognize them when we see them, no matter what religion or none that they adhere to. And, uh, you know, at first glance, you see these people and you're like, oh, wow, they have a really huge ego and there's no real reason for it. But Anton LaVey says, no, they don't have a huge ego. And that's why they're bragging about everything. That's why they're acting like they are the high and mighty, because they're trying to make up for their lack of ego. It's sort of that Napoleon complex that you hear from time to time. And now the people that I recognize have had that have had sort of this overinflated ego. It does make perfect sense that no, it's not that they have a large ego. It's that they don't have a large ego. And that's their problem. They're trying to compensate for not having ego by acting like a douchebag in most cases. But in all cases, it's an unhealthy way of, of developing a sense of self-worth. You do that through setting your own goals, meeting your own goals, and achieving your own goals. Having your own successes, defining your own levels of involvement in anything that you do. When you, when you place yourself in comparison to others around you, you lose your sense of self and your ability to, to really just to develop as a, as a true, powerful individual because you're always putting yourself in comparison to others and you're the only you there is. And if there can be sort of a, a first step into having a healthy ego, that might be it recognizing your strengths and weaknesses, identifying your goals in life, and from that point on, giving less than two shits about what others think or where they are in life, etc. So I thought that was interesting how he, he addressed the ego and how he really compares the ego in different styles of religion with Satanism. I think it's, I think it's really great. And I want to do this uh, sort of last little bit here. It's rather curious that the only time suicide is considered sinful by other religions is when it comes as an indulgence. Meaning you're doing it for your own reasons rather than theirs. I just thought that was a really interesting sort of closing line on the chapter. Now, let me sort of say, because that sort of, <laughs> if you've just taken this and you haven't read the chapter, you know, you really need to read the Satanic Bible and obviously this chapter with it. But 
suicide is the giving up of life. And Satanists really celebrate life. It's the only heaven or hell we have. And if you're experiencing hell in this life, then you need to do what you have to do in order to turn that around. It's incumbent upon you. Suicide is not a way out. It's not a coping mechanism. It's the ultimate end and should be, as always, as it has to be, a last resort. And for me, it's not even an option. Like, no matter how, and of course, you know, you can, you can sort of play the what-ifs game. But I cannot imagine a scenario where I would prefer to kill myself because I'm pretty damn good at picking up pieces <laughs> and moving forward. And I think yeah, most Satanists are. Uh, certainly the healthy ones. <laughs> the ones with healthy egos. I love that. Alright, um, and that's gonna do it for this Devil's Advocate. Just sort of wanted to bring that up, you know. Cherish life, man. This is all we've got. And you know what? Let's be realistic about who and what we are and what we can do and stop this braggarty bullshit. And then at the bottom line, define your own success in life. And that will lead to a very healthy ego and uh, less douchebaggery. <laughs> and that's a good thing, I would like to think. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the Infernal Informant. Listen up, listen up. Hey, Good news. There's no devil. Bad news. no heaven. There's nothing to see. I'm your Infernal Informant. All right, this is the Washington Post on Faith. Pope names seven new saints as Vatican seeks to revive faith in places where it's lagging. So I guess the worldwide. <laughs> By Associated Press, published October 20th, updated today. Vatican City, some 80,000 pilgrims in flowered lay, feathered headdresses, and other traditional garb flooded St. Peter's Square on Sunday as Pope Benedict, oh, the 16th, added seven more saints onto the ro roster of Catholic role models in a bid to reinvigorate the faith in parts of the world where it's lagging. Two of the new saints were Americans, Katerai Tekekwitha, the first Native American saint from the U.S., and Mother Marianne Cope, a 19th century Franciscan nun who cured or cared for leprosy patients in Hawaii. It seemed as if a third saint, Pedro Calungsod, a 17th century Filipino teenage martyr drew the biggest crowd of all, with Rome's sizable Filipino expat community turning out in flag-waving droves to welcome the country's second saint. And it's, it's sort of like a football game, right? Or any sporting event. It, they immediately personalize it, so instead of it just being this guy who happens to be of Filipino descent, it's their community's saint, <laughs> you know? It's like they have ownership because of his uh, background. But I, I wonder if he was a mass murderer or a serial killer or a child killer, a uh, child rapist, like some Catholic priests, if they would take ownership like that, or if they would just say, ah, oh, he's one of the bad ones, never ever bring up that ethnic connection at all. In his uh, homily, Benedict praised each 
of the seven as heroic and courageous examples for the entire church, calling Cope a shining model for Catholics and Kateri an inspiration to indigenous faithful across North America. <laughs> an inspiration to indigenous faithful. So, uh, yeah, you know what? It is inspiring when you give up the <laughs> heritage that your people have had for tens of thousands of years. Yeah, it's inspiring. Come over. <laughs> Enter through violence, disease, uh, slavery, our religion. And then we, years later, <laughs> will take one of your kind and promote them to sainthood. <laughs> May the witness of these new saints speak today to the whole church, and may these intercessions strengthen and sustain her in her mission to proclaim the gospel to the whole world, he said. This, has there, do you think that there's a corner of this world as we know it that hasn't been spoken to about your gospel? Do you, do you think? And do you think that maybe that's just a little bit arrogant that you should bring that? And you know, far be it from me, I'm not a... Catholic by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm just saying, look at yourself and see the hypocrisy that you're uh, living here. It's it's absurd. You you call pride a sin, Lucifer's sin, mm -hmm. and yet uh, you know you're proud. You have this this saint from your ethnicity. They're yours. Woohoo! Go team. You're pr <laughs> you're proud of this gospel that you have so much so that you have to spread it to every single corner of this round world kind of funny how that works out right um yeah but they never look at themselves so i'm really just <laughs> preaching to the choir the celebrations began at dawn with native americans in beaded and feathered headdresses and leather fringed tunics singing songs to Katari to the beat of drums as the sun rose over saint peter's square you know this happens in my town too Except it's called Native American Heritage Week, or <laughs> Celebration, or Diversity Weekend, or some shit. I wonder if those people who are celebrating their actual heritage would find offense with these people, um, really, uh, really tainting <laughs> their heritage by taking up with these uh, murderers and molesters. I wonder. I'll have to ask one of them next time. <laughs> next time I stumble across that park. Later, the crowds cheered as the Pope read out the names of each of the new saints in Latin and declared that they were worthy of veneration by the entire church. Prayers were read out in Mohawk and Cebuanu, the dialect of Kalungsgod's native Cebu, province and in English by a nun wearing a lay. It is so nice to see God showing all the flavors of the world, marveled Jean Caldwell, a Native American member of the Menominee Reservation in Neopit, Wisconsin, who attended with his wife Linda. The Native Americans were enthralled to have Katari canonized, he said. I can't, I'm sorry, I have to go back to that nun wearing the lay. Um, I've always had this weird fetish, and you probably don't want to hear this with nuns. You know, what do they have under there anyway? And when I think of one with a lay, sort of like, uh, I don't know, a garter belt around her neck. It makes me think she's a little sexier than <laughs> she might have been just as a nun. You know, maybe this is me. Maybe I'm sick. <laughs> 
uh, the canonization coincided with a Vatican meeting of the world's bishops in trying to revive Christianity in places where it's fallen by the wayside. You, you always have to wonder of motivation when on one hand they're saying, we are canonizing these saints, and then immediately following that on the other hand, because people don't believe in your area. So are they really canonizing them because they're worthy, or are they doing it just because they want to try to, you know... I don't know, uh, bring uh, the numbers up a little bit? What do you think? I mean, they don't even try to hide it. They're just flat out saying it. We're canonizing these people because we're trying to raise the numbers. <laughs> and these people are happy. They're like, oh, yes, go team. We are canonized all for money. Like, that that's the bottom line. What you idiots seem to fail to realize is that the Vatican is a business, a failing business, with no one to bail them out. Countries worldwide are taxing them or attempting to tax them as much as they can, and the Vatican is bankrupt. They're broke. They can't pay their taxes. So what do they do? They have to figure out some way of bringing up the numbers, getting people in those churches, passing those plates, and getting those donations. It's all about the Skrilla. That's the bottom line. And they're so stupid not to see that. But you know what? If you want to be duped out of your money, I have no problem with that at all. What I have a problem with is bringing it so blatantly to the masses and the masses not seeing it. Now, I've never had faith in humankind. I think the majority of us don't really deserve to be, exist at all. But when it's so blatant like this, and they're still cheering, and they're still dancing on their tiptoes, and their nuns are wearing lays but not raising those skirts. Hold on, I'll try to bring it back. <laughs> uh, it, it drives me a little bit crazy, more than normal, if that's possible, and it is. Several of the new saints were missionaries, making clear the Pope hopes their example, even though they lived hundreds of years ago, will be relevant today as the Catholic Church tries to hold on to its faithful. And I gotta tell you, um, if the Catholic Church thinks hundreds of years ago is relevant to today, well, at least they're consistent with something. Stupidity. <laughs> it's a tough task as the Vatican faces competition from evangelical churches in Africa and Latin America, increasing secularization in the West and disenchantment due to the clerical sex abuse scandal in Europe and beyond, and disenchantment due to the raping of children by your priests. Yeah, too bad for you. The two American saints actually hail from roughly the same place, which is today upstate New York, although they lived two centuries apart. Known as the Lily of the Mohawks, Catari was born in 1656 to a pagan Iroquois father and a Algonquin Christian mother. Really? Born to a pagan Iroquois father and an Algonquin Christian mother? That sounds an awful lot like rape as well, but who knows, they might have been in love. Her parents and only brother died when she was four during a small pox epidemic that left her badly scarred and with impaired eyesight. She went to live with her uncle, a Mohawk, and was baptized Catholic by Jesuit missionaries, but she was ostracized and persecuted by other natives for her faith, and she died in what is now Canada when she was 24. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Speaking in English and French in honor of Catarai's Canadian ties, Benedict noted how unusual it was in Catarai's indigenous culture for her to choose to devote herself to her Catholic faith. Is it unusual? Because if she's ostracized from everyone and everything, and she's empty and alone, wouldn't she just latch on to whatever other faith would take her? That just happened to be you? Is that something to cherish? Or is it just a sign of a weak individual grasping at straws? May her example help us to live where we are, loving loving Jesus without denying who we are, Benedict said. St. Catarib, protectress of Canada and the first Native American saint, we entrust you to the renewal of the faith in the First Nations and in all of North America. Among the few people chosen to receive communion from the Pope himself was a Jake Fink Boner. <laughs> now, I'm sure he doesn't pronounce it that way. <laughs> Fink Bonnier, but it's Fink Boner. <laughs> a 12-year-old ball, god damn it. Ah! Uh, uh, a 12-year-old boy from Native American descent from the western U.S. state of Washington, whose recovery from an infection of flesh-eating bacteria was deemed miraculous by the Vatican. Uh, I wonder if it was the Vatican that treated him, or if it was modern medical science. Hmm. Miraculous. The Vatican determined that Jake was cured through Catarai's intercession after his family and community invoked her in their prayers, paving the way for her canonization. Cope is revered among many Catholics in Hawaii, where she arrived, I thought it was a guy, to be honest, from New York in 1883 to care for leprosy patients in Kaluapapa, Kaluapapa, an isolated peninsula on Molokai Island where Hawaii governments enforcibly exiled them for decades. At the time, there was widespread fear for the disfiguring disease, which can cause skin lesions, mangled fingers and toes, and lead to blindness. Cope, however, led a band of Franciscan nuns to the peninsula to care for the patients, just as St. Damien, a Belgian priest, did in 1873. He died of the disease 16 years later and was canonized in 2009. Sucks to be you. At a time when little could be done for those suffering from this terrible disease, Mariana Cope showed the highest love, courage, and enthusiasm. Benedict said in his homily, she's assigning an energetic example of the best of the tradition of Catholic nursing sisters and the spirit of her beloved St. Francis. 250 pilgrims from Hawaii traveled to Rome for Mother Marianne's canonization, including nine Kalopapa patients, as well as the faithful from the local diocese. Mariana Cope means a great deal to us, said Pilgrim Aida Javier, <laughs> who traveled from Honolulu with her husband, Romy, for the Mass. My husband and I feel blessed and honored to be a part of this canonization. Another pilgrim was Sharon Smith of Syracuse, New York, whose 2005 cure from complications with pancreatitis and inflammation of the pancreas was declared medically inexplicable by the, Vati <laughs> by the Vatican, <laughs> the miracle needed for Mother Mariana to be named a saint. So it wasn't that it was inexplicable to the doctors, but to the Vatican. Ha! Go figure. Ah, oh, 2,000 years and the bullshit keeps flowing fresh. <laughs> in an interview last week, Smith recounted how she had fainted one day in her home, an aller allergic reaction to medication she was taking for a kidney transplant, and awoke in the hospital to find the doctors weren't giving her much time to live. 
Her disease was eating away at her insides, causing her stomach to detach from her intestines. Doctors said they couldn't repair it. And at a certain point, a nun pinned a bag of ashes and dirt from Mother Mariana's grave on her and prayed. I've never heard of her, but we continue to pray, Smith said. And I just, I just started getting better. I believe in miracles, and I don't know whether it was all the prayers or the pinning of the relic, but I know that something worked. And I'm here for some reason, Smith said. The Vatican's complicated saint-making procedure requires that the Vatican certify a miracle was performed through the intercession of the candidate, a medically inexplicable cure that can be directly linked to the prayers offered by the faithful. One miracle is needed for <clears throat> beatification, a second for canonization. Um, yeah, uh, we, we actually see part of this through the psychological drama of ritual. So, from that angle, eh, you know, maybe it uh, alleviated some of the worry and stress that was helping her body, um, her body's inability to cope with the disease, who knows. But whatever ritual you need to do that you're okay with, in order to sort of clarify your sense of being and purpose and move forward is sort of essential. And uh, so, you know, for them, yeah, this was one way of doing it. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to shit on someone else's uh, happy feelings. Okay, often. <laughs> but uh, let's not... I mean, let's just call it what it is, right? It, it, it's, it's psychology. It's uh, medical... <laughs> Act. It is not a miracle. Uh, the Philippines' second saint, <clears throat> Kalungstad, was a Filipino teenager who helped Jesuit priests convert natives in Guam in the 17th century, but was killed by spear-wielding villagers opposed to the missionaries' efforts to baptize their children. Yeah, <laughs> so they were taking their children and baptizing them, and for that, because he was killed <laughs> in active opposition of the Filipinos' natives' beliefs, Eh, let's canonize the dude and have all those Filipinos raising their hands in uni unity. Yay! <laughs> That's insane. When the Mormons were actively, and probably still are to be quite honest, but they said they stopped, actively baptizing Holocaust victims, dead Jews, into the Mormon faith. <laughs> they were shit on by everyone, but this dude gets canonized for it. That's It's just amazing. We are especially proud because he's so young, said Mariana Diza, a 39-year-old housekeeper working in Rome, who was on hand for the Mass. The other new saints are Jacques Berthet, a 19th-century French Jesuit who was killed uh, by rebels in Madagascar, where he was working as a missionary. Giovanni Battista Piamarta, an Italian who founded a religious order in 1900 and established a Catholic printing and publishing house in his native Brescia, Carmen Sales y Barranqueres a Spanish nun who founded a religious order to educate children in 1892, and Anna Schaefer, a 19th century German laywoman who became a model for the sick and suffering after she fell into a boiler and badly burned her legs. Uh, the wounds never healed, causing her constant pain. Um, I'm pretty damn sure that you... If you are in constant pain, your body tunes that out. Um, uh, with asthma, for example, you tune out... Um, if, if you have continual asthma, and certainly cases differ, but one of the, uh, and heartburn, one of, um, one of the doctors that I went to see when I was getting daily heartburn, um, and they pinned that on my late set asthma, 
because um, uh, of hiatal hernia, they said that you need to be careful because you your body gets used to pain after a certain amount of time. So the discomfort that you're feeling for heartburn on a regular basis is actually dangerous if you stop feeling it because then you don't know of the damage that's being done. I mean, if you're in pain, then you're aware of it. But if you get used to it, you forget about it, you don't think about it, and so you don't treat the pain that you're experiencing. So if, you know, it's got to suck pretty damn bad to have burns all over your body, but you know what? At some point, you're going to get used to that. I mean, that's going to be the, the existence that you have. So you you will come to terms with that. I don't know if uh, deification helps anyone else in that, but eh, whatever. <laughs> uh, this is so ridiculous. Um, be, I had to bring this to you, and I'm sorry you had to sit through all that shit, because it is pretty sad and pathetic, but I would like to think my commentary helped ease that pain. Because it's so transparent why they're doing it. It's just so obvious. I mean, they come out and say it. We're doing this because we need to raise money. <laughs> I mean, come on. All right, the next one is uh, Beljar News. Uh, rogue climate hacker dumps 100 tons of iron into the Pacific Ocean by Jessica Lear. Uh, updated October 20. According to The Guardian, Russ George, an American businessman, ordered 100 tons of iron sulfate to be dumped into the Pacific Ocean from West Canada in July. The dump, which was part of a geoengineering project, has gained international attention from environmentalists and civil society groups, saying it was a violation of laws. The iron dump is expected to be brought up for debate at the upcoming United Nations Environmental Summit in India. George released the iron into the ocean to achieve a geoengineering technique called ocean fertilization. The theory said the iron will increase the number of plankton, which would mean more carbon dioxide absorption, allowing the tiny sea creatures to sink into the ocean bed with their carbon. Satellite images have recently provided evidence that George's experiment is working, as there is an obvious boom in plankton in the area. Lawyers, environmentalists, and civil society groups are calling it a blatant violation of two international moratoria, and the news is likely to spark outrage at a United Nations environmental summit taking place in India this week, according to The Guardian. Despite getting positive results from this iron dump, George, who is the former chief executive of Planktos Incorporated, <laughs> hasn't been so lucky in the past. Uh, this dude actually lives in a pineapple at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> He's previously tried and failed large iron dumps near the Galapagos and Canary Islands. These attempts caused Georgia's ship to be banned from entering Spanish and Ecuadorian governments. The goal of ocean fertilization <clears throat> by is to trap carbon in the deep ocean. <clears throat> However, there is discourse between scientists, as some believe the high concentrations of iron can produce adverse effects, such as toxic tides and lifeless waters. In addition, some think it can increase ocean acidification and, even worse, global warming. John Cullen, an oceanographer at Dalhousie University, or Dalhousie University, believes it is important to err on the side of caution when it comes to potentially harmful studies. It is difficult, to, if not impossible, to detect and describe important effects that we know might occur months or years later, he said. History is full of examples of ecological manipulations that backfired. Still, George is sticking by his work, which he says is being supported by NASA and the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration. According to him, the Iron Dump is the most substantial ocean restoration project in history. 
he told the Guardian. In addition, George is quick to discredit any negative thoughts about his study. We've gathered data targeting all the possible fears that have been raised about ocean fertilization, he said, and the news is good news all around for the planet. Even though his study may seem successful, George is expected to come under fire at the UN's upcoming convention of Bi biological diversity. Christina M. Gerde, who works for the International Union for Conservation of Nature, said dumping iron into the ocean is not allowed, no matter what the intentions. She said in order for a project like George's to be conducted, it would have to be determined that it is for scientific research and not commercial motiv motivation. This does not appear to have been uh, had the guise of legitimate scientific research, she said. And then at the end of this article, they had this little geoengineering um, video. It's about 15 minutes long, and it's certainly worth checking out. Um, actually, just search uh, Rogue Climate Hacker, and you should come up to this um, Bell Jar News article. Because it talks about geoengineering and the, the benefits and um, potentials, you know, sort of draws to it. And it's sort of this larger conversation about um, our, our climate and how it is drastically changing and even more than was anticipated. But this has been a conversation that's been going on since the 50s. Um, that was when one of the first papers that this uh, particular speech uh, speaks to. But it's something that we act like it's all new. We act like it's just this political thing, and, and it is does have political implications, absolutely. But it's something that's been around since the 50s, and been talked about, and warned about. And these effects that have been warned about are coming faster and harder than anyone anticipated. And some of the effects, I mean, are irreversible. And what geoengineering is, are scientific methods of altering our climate. So in, in this particular case, George was dumping iron into the ocean because it encourages whatever plankton life to uh, come up. But it may have worked. It's the side effects of these geoengineering products or projects that are really the cause for concern here. So one that this talk um, brings up is we could just easily put out sulfur um, silicon into the upper atmosphere which would reflect the light and cool down the planet and this is actually done naturally in a lot of uh, massive volcano eruptions and we've seen uh, global temperatures severely and immediately drop because of that sulfur in the upper atmosphere reflecting the light but there are actually um, long-term negative effects that are you know, direct, obvious direct results of uh, geoengineering projects. And some of them you're not going to see until you try it. And so that's why it's important to have, instead of corporations taking the lead on geoengineering products, you have scientists taking the lead and studying the effects in targeted areas. I mean, this is this is a big thing because when you look at how long we've been talking about climate hazards where we are now we've literally gone nowhere and the problem has only gotten worse so geoengineering effects can immediately and drastically sort of bend that curve but then there's the side effects that 
you know, can actually be like you know, long term and, and very, very troubling. So it's tough on scientists because they don't want to talk about geoengineering because one, it sounds so good because it does have real immediate good, but also potential bad. And they don't want to have to suffer that potential bad for the moment because, you know, as a species, we're really reactionary and we just worry about what's going to happen now and not so much what's going to happen later. So they always stress not geoengineering, but a global change in business, as it were. And this is sort of where I fall in line with the idea of nuclear power, because I'm, I'm personally a big fan of it. The number of advancements that we've had in nuclear containment and the production of energy through nuclear power, compared with the number of tragedies, there's no question in my mind we should have more nuclear plants in this world, and I wouldn't even care if one was built up in the desert that's relatively near to me. I mean, we have nuclear waste being stored in the Utah desert anyway. Why not put a plant there and have some use, right? So if we have methods, and that's just one, I mean, wind power, which is being actively used here in Utah to great success, and um, uh, solar, not as much success, but it's still a really, really good conversion rate. When you have technology that allows you to drastically curve um, the carbon dioxide emissions that, that are really being seen as the primary culprit of climate change, then there's something we can do about it in the long term. But that is the, the point. That is a long time to sort of reverse problems. And in that long time span, there are creatures on this earth, and, and namely polar bears in, in their habitat, are, are going to be gone. I mean... And is that necessarily a bad thing? Eh, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never really had an affinity for polar bears. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, they're, they're pretty creatures. <laughs> I can appreciate them for that. But the point is that the realistic approach is going to have to be somewhere in between. And that's kind of that third side that we're always going to have to look at. You can either go the pure geoengineering approach, which who knows what side effects will come in the future, or you can take the global change approach, which takes a long time and it will have a lot of... Um, negative uh, repercussions in between that turnaround point. Or you can do a mixture of both. Uh, sort of stem that curve through geoengineering and then stop geoengineering as, as the results uh, start to uh, curve in our favor of climate change. So that's what this uh, article was about um, really through that video, through that, through that speech. And that's really why I'm bringing it to you, because it was interesting. Before this article, I hadn't really looked into geoengineering at all, and I thought it was a fascinating notion, and it's certainly something that we should be looking at as a scientific community. Um, really, really, really cannot stress that enough, not letting corporations run, have their way, and run business. A dude with the last name of Plankton dumping iron into the ocean so that it grows more plankton, you cannot tell me <laughs> that that is not, one, very cartoonish, but two, self-serving. <laughs>
especially because he has a plankton business. It's so funny. Okay, so that's the article, and that's going to do it for the Infernal Informant. Thank you for sitting through that. Next up is Down to the Crossroads, a very, very, very haunted episode. I've edited it together so you don't have to suffer as we did. <laughs> and you actually get to enjoy some really amazing music, and Aaron is fantastic as always. So enjoy. Welcome to another Down to the Crossroads. I'm joining Aaron for episode four. This is our Halloween, our October episode of Down to the Crossroads, which is so fitting and so amazing. How are you? <laughs> I'm wonderful. How are you? <laughs> wonderful. We're having so many technology problems, it's not even fucking funny. So, uh, we almost didn't even get to do this because your computer took a dump on you, right? Holy shit, yeah. I mean, I had to completely rebuild this thing, but I had a lot of help, That's a lot terrible. of good friends. Yeah, it was awful. Well, I'm sure the audience is as excited as I am to have you <laughs> able to do this broadcast and able to put this out. We I actually delayed this a couple of weeks just so that we could uh, sort of line this up as close as I could with Nine Cents and Halloween. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited. So what do you have for us this week? I appreciate that. I've got a few songs for you. They're all, you know, obviously around a theme, the spooky theme. Mm -hmm. um, I say we jump right into it. Did we play the intro yet? You know what? We didn't. You want us? <laughs> <It was too laughs> bad, yeah. All right, there you will. Sure you won't stay out in this blackout? Sure is dark tonight. Thank you for the ride, sir. I think I'll be fine. See yourself. What are you doing out here? Oh, oh I'm, I'm headed down to the crossroads. <laughs> Wait, miss. You can't be. You're the, you're the devil. devil. But you're, you're beautiful. beautiful. Just sign here. Oh my God. Alright, well, for what it's worth, it we'll right. never get this perfect. <laughs> it's just like constant. Perfection's right. boring. Yeah, indeed. Just, <laughs> I'll just keep telling myself that anyway. <laughs> Alright, so I'm excited. We have some uh, amazing, it looks like tracks queued up here. Yeah, I think it, you know, here's some stuff that maybe not a lot of people have heard. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start playing it. We're going to start with Tampa Red. And here he is singing about the Witchin' Hour Blues. Yeah. That's right. That's more like it. <laughs> we are here, finally. Oh, hey. look and listen. That Witchin' Hour is here again. All right, so this is Tampa Red. And he is, well, he was born in Georgia, but he's really well known for his Chicago-style blues. He was sort of the bridge between, like, the rural country blues, the, the, you know, the South, and that urban blues style that we know kind of as the Chicago blues style. He had this really distinctive way of playing that slide guitar. Um, he was actually known as 
the guitar wizard. <laughs> Maybe the first person to be called the guitar wizard. <laughs> that, sounds, that doesn't even sound like a good thing. You're, it's like making fun of you. Oh, you're a wizard. I can Yeah, I think it was a compliment, though, but who knows? So on this, we're actually watching a YouTube video of this song, and there's this weird favorite styles for fancy dress image. Yeah. Fuck, what is Isn't that great? I'm not sure what that is, but I think it's definitely fancy, I know that. <laughs> I would love to figure out how it connects with this. <laughs> I think it's a Halloween theme. And ever since you died. So anyway, right, this song, you say I, would wear? I would wear that one in the middle, the bird head. <laughs> I think I could pull that off. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> so this song is about poor old Tampa Red. He's apparently being haunted by his dead girlfriend or wife. I'm even afraid to raise my hand. <laughs> this line coming up is great. Hollow, I'm afraid to raise my hand. <laughs> because that that witch an hour. <laughs> that witch an hour. She come and walk in like a man. man. She means business. I tell you people what she said to me. So that that bottleneck blue style that he has dying, there, that's really what I tell you people where the Chicago blues kinda got their sound was that that you know, you always see it now with Tampa you going to have with slide an guitar. and I will linger in your memory. So Alright, so that was that. that. was cool. <laughs> That was fun, it, and uh, I don't hear a lot about women coming back from the dead. Uh-huh, yeah. I don't hear a lot about that. Usually uh, guys are trying to get them in the ground, they usually don't come back up. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of year. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Alright, well how about we roll into the next track then? That sounds great. This next one. <laughs> Here we go. So this is Lonnie Johnson. He was absolutely peerless among the guitar players in the day. This was recorded in 1927, I believe. The Blue Ghost Blues. And Lonnie Johnson was uh, really idolized by Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson, of course, is one of the biggest blues players around. He was heavily influenced by Lonnie Johnson. My windows is rattling, my doorknob turning round and round. I always wonder what they mean by 
when they say that. I was heavily influenced. Or I was influenced. I mean, there had to have been a handful of talented blues musicians back then that were actually of color. So to say I was... That's just like saying, well, I like this genre because there's really not that many people to be influenced by. That's a good point, but... You know, the ones that weren't, I guess the ones that weren't influential are kind of forgotten now. I mean, that's part of the reason why we remember Lonnie Johnson is because yeah. not only did Robert Johnson uh, idolize him, but, you know, many others sort of were standing on the shoulders of this giant, you know. So, like, Robert Johnson's, some of his songs were actual, like, almost covers of Lonnie Johnson's songs. And especially there's a couple uh, Robert Johnson songs, like Malted Milk and um, Drunk hearted man that are both that are sort of arrangements of one Lonnie Johnson song called Lifesaver Blues. He's got this great voice, you know, it's a very, he was very influenced by jazz and you can tell, you know, he, he, he can do the dirty blues but can also throw in these like jazz phrasing, you know, this jazz phrasing with in a dirty blues song. This one, you know, you can hear sort of just like little jazz fills in there, which is great. I mean, he, and he, you know, he start, first started um, playing the violin, and then he kind of got into jazz, and he was playing jazz, and then he really, but he's you know, most well-known for this blues. And this song is less about being haunted by a specific woman, and he's more about in a haunted house. I love, I love the, the, the concept of just uh, of haunting and stuff. Where, where do you land on that? On uh, the reality of ghosts and spirits? Yeah, yeah. Well, you could probably guess. <laughs> I don't believe in the supernatural, but I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I wanted to believe for many years when I was a kid. Uh-oh. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I just... Okay. I lost... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> this whole episode is haunted. I do believe that this episode is haunted. I fall very firmly on the side of this episode. <laughs> I absolutely am feeling it. There's, we've completely lost control of, of how it's going to be presented and viewed. And I love it. I best. think it's perfect. <laughs> I think, you know what, one of the problems is that I'm sober, and I have no, <laughs> nothing here. I think we've nailed down the problem, then, because I am not sober. Oh, really? The magic, I thought we had an agreement here, Adam, <laughs> that we were going to always be drunk on air. I feel like you've let me down now. I don't know what to think of us anymore. <laughs> What's happened oh, to us? I've let us down. <laughs> you've gone so We have to go see a alcoholic counselor. <laughs> Yep. What, are you, what are you imbibing? Uh, the usual. Red wine. Nice. I'm not sure even the make and model of this one. It's some box wine. You know me. <laughs> I love the make and model of this one. <laughs> it's red, it's wet, and it's a buzz. <laughs> it, and that's all the fucking matters. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you know what? Here's what I love about this time of year and mm. uh, about the songs that you've chosen, the, the theme, of course, as it fits, is that... I mean, certainly as Satanists, there's a point where we suspend disbelief uh, in the mm -hmm. ritual chamber, in the decompression chamber, if you happen to do that. So the idea that we can be affected by otherworldly beings or entities or, or ghosts in this particular case is 
in reality an absurd notion, but that doesn't mean that we can't put our, our consciousness in a position where we're still terrified of it and we still yeah. allow it to sort a certain authority over that's our cool. minds. Which, that's why we have way more fun than everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're not <clears throat> unless we choose to be really the slaves of our, our minds and, and that is Mm -hmm. The awareness of that is is integral uh, to being, Absolutely. I think, a healthy human being. But it also means that you know, <laughs> times like this time of year and songs like these, it's just so much more rich and compelling. It's it's fantastic. Absolutely, and a whole lot more fun. Well, what do we have next? Oh, this is awesome. Wiggle, <laughs> you hear this song? <laughs> it's so great. So usually, you know, when you hear songs, you know, there's all this whole genre of like murder ballads and stuff. And this is, of course, not really a ballad, but definitely a song about murder. But usually, when you hear a song about murder, it's from the man's point of view. We're going to hear a song by the <laughs> Victorious Spivey, and it's called Bloodthirsty Blues. Oh, and it already started. The way it starts is so great. It starts off really plaintive and haunting. Eerie, yeah. Yeah. Like a funeral march. Yeah. I mean, she, yes, yeah, and she just starts out sort of wailing. Look at all that blood. <laughs> I mean, I got, I have goosebumps. I don't know about you. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> he deserved it, of course, I'm sure, but... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I told him blood was in my she warned him, you know, she says, I, I told him blood was in my eyes, but he wouldn't listen. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're saying? I told him blood was in my Men don't listen. <laughs> oh shit! Isn't that great? Instead of giving him sugar, I put glass in his tea, which obviously is like a double entendre, you know. Now, Victoria Spivey was one of the most, again, we'll go back to being influential, but she was definitely one of the most influential female blues singers. She started uh, playing music at the age of 12, and she was playing in the, uh, playing the piano and singing in movie theaters in Texas, and then she went on to... Um, I, I hate to run over some of these great lyrics, but yeah, she started playing in whorehouses and gambling parlors and gay hangouts in, in Texas. And... Yeah, it had to be really challenging in, in the years that this was taken for a woman, a black woman, uh, to find work like this. Oh, yeah. And then to sing a song like this. Like this. I mean, it had to be just... I mean, just really, uh, I'm challenging the status quo at every level. Mm -hmm. yes, I know I'm 
<laughs> oh, she's blood toasty. Love it. Isn't it great? All right. I mean, it's just so slow, and it just sort of drags you. It, like, pulls you along, and you want to hear this mm-hmm. um, just rhythmic, soft tone, and then she gives that to you, but with <laughs> this context of just bloody fucking murder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she Even she is sh- sort of shocked by how much blood there is and how much... Yeah, how gory it all is. And just, but it, like even that, it wasn't even like she was like terrified or she no. was, it was just like this observation. She was like, "Oh, huh. look at all that blood. <laughs> look what oh. I did." <laughs> I ain't sorry. Oh, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> but I love it. I love that she knows. You know, she told him. She said, "I had blood in my eyes. I told you this. <laughs> you should have known." But that's just great. <laughs> yes. So, gentlemen, um, if your wife or your girlfriend or your mistress <laughs> ever says she has blood in her eyes, especially if it's a mistress, listen. Believe <laughs> it. She's got nothing to fucking lose. <laughs> yeah, she's trying to oh, come clean. <laughs> so, I wonder, I mean, in a situation like that, you're telling them to uh, let them know that, you know, you're on the edge. But also, <laughs> by telling them that, aren't you just right. saying, you know, it's, it's past. It's too late. I mean, you can be as nice as you fucking want, but at this point... All I want to do is stab you in the face or right. put glass in your teeth, as it were. <laughs> well, it's sort of a warning, but it's also, I think, a, a come on almost. You know, like because let's face it, a lot of dudes are really into those crazy bitches. You know, and the more you hear about like a woman being crazy and having blood in her eyes, there's a little bit of a sexual draw to that. But so in a way, she's warning you, but she's also kind of trying to entice you. Like I'm crazy, I'm unpredictable. You never know what's gonna come from me. Um, oh wow! I, I think there's a lot of that in there. <laughs> yeah, especially the seductive way she was just sort of rolling oh, yeah. those lyrics out. Mowing oh, them. see, I didn't even think of that. Oh but, yeah, uh, you gotta think about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> well, this was an amazingly haunted and challenging technologically, but <laughs> brilliant episode. Thank you so much for bringing oh, us. You know, it's my pleasure. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of fun. So, uh, if we had to wrap up this mm. episode with uh, some tagline that oh, Sam no. might use as the title for the, <laughs> the show, what do you I think it should be? I didn't prepare for this. Um, <laughs> something about blood in my eyes. That's a great Turner phrase. I think you know, I've got blood in my eyes. Nice. I dig it. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So, witching hour blues. Blue Ghost Blues and Bloodthirsty Blues. <laughs> God damn. Oh, that's a great title, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, let's let's do this again, and let's not make it so long next time. Absolutely. Cool. Well, until then, hail Satan. Hail Satan. So bizarre. It's the bizarre of the bizarre. Oh, yeah, another bazaar of the bazaar. <laughs> so creepy. All right, this one isn't so much creepy or weird as it is just incredibly aggravating for me as a man or human or individual or whatever the fuck you want to call me, alien. <clears throat> you ask a quick question, what you expect to be a quick question, and you get a story as an answer. I'm married into this. 
There always has to be some bad with the good. I keep telling myself that. <laughs> because I'll be like, hey, honey, um, did you have peanut butter and jelly for lunch? And it turns into a 20-minute discussion about her sister's knife set. <laughs> like, I don't even know how I got there. But somehow, the, the universe twisted and contorted and created this wormhole that I got sucked into by simply asking a yes or no question. And so I, I'm an asshole. I have to start this entire argument by saying Adam is an asshole, as if you didn't know that already, because I'm the type of guy that says I just wanted a yes or no as they start in. And it's gotten so that I know when I'm going to start hearing a story, and so I cut that shit off as soon as possible. There's no way I want to sit through this. And it's tough because the more you know someone, the easier it is to make that determination. Oh shit, this is turning into a novel. When <laughs> I really, really just wanted to know if you wanted to watch King Kong with me tonight. <laughs> that was the only fucking question I had. And it turned into how I should really take a shower after you because I use too much of the hot water. And I squeeze from the middle of the tube instead of the end of the tube. Like just... Fuck! I just want to watch King Kong! I haven't seen it in a while! And you are literally stopping me from that quest of mine! <laughs> I have- a, it's a quest! I have my helmet and my shield and my sword, and I want to watch fucking King Kong! That's it! Just let me do it, please! Fuck! <laughs> or, I was just wondering if you ate peanut butter and jelly because I want to know who touched it last or I want to know if there's any left or I want to know if it was any good or I want to know if I should include you in whatever I'm making for lunch or whatever but I can't finish until you're finished talking about your sister's knife set ah really <laughs> and this carries on to school and so I immediately like I said I cut that shit off as soon as possible are you gonna do this they say, well, I just want a yes or no answer. That's all I want to know. Yes or no. Are you going to do this? So I look like a total douchebag for saying that. But it's either that or I sit there for 20 minutes never actually knowing if at the end of that 20 minutes I'm ever going to get the answer that I was looking for. <laughs> ever. And, okay, so like I said, it's easier to tell when it's someone you know, but you run into these people all the time. And even friends that, you know, you don't want to whip out your asshole card yet. You don't want let them to see how asshole you really are at times. And so you politely sit through these long-winded fucking stories. All the while, inside, from the inside, you are clawing your eyeballs. <laughs> Just scratching the inside. Like, the inside of my skull actually has fingernail, like, indent marks from me literally clawing my brains out. Because I have to sit through this shit over and over again. And I could blame it on the military because they were very much to the point people. And I got my ass reamed out a number of times because I too was one of these storytellers. And uh, you could just say this entire show is based around me being a storyteller <laughs> of varying effectiveness. But length is not in question. So I can be long-winded. I've got the gift for gab. But there's a time and a place. And when the answer to a proposed question is quite easily detectable as a yes or no, don't give a goddamn story, please, for everyone involved. For the person having to sit through this long-winded, probably more likely than not, horribly boring story that you are giving us. And here's the other thing. If it doesn't end in Godzilla breaking down a building, if it doesn't end in Superman saving you, 
then it's probably not worth telling. Because quite frankly, nothing really happens that exciting in your life. Really. I mean, let's be honest here, people. We live pretty mundane lives. Like, you wake up, you brush your teeth, you drop a deuce, and you go to work. Everything in between is not worth the story. <laughs> it is not. Now, I may be talking myself out of my job here at Nine Cents <laughs> by saying that, but I've had to sit through it so much in my life that it has become, it has become a torturous thing. And like I was saying earlier, I'm, uh, you know, you get used to pain. <laughs> and I have grown accustomed. <laughs> in shame, I have grown accustomed to this pain. But uh, I find the older I get, the shorter my patience level is, and the quicker I am to whip out that asshole cutoff card. And uh, you know what? Maybe you should too. And then if you are one of those people that just wants to tell a fucking story, tell it to the mirror, because the rest of us don't fucking care. Give the yes or no that we're looking for. Please, for fuck's sake, give us a yes or no. And that's going to do it for Bizarre the Bizarre. And for another show. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. Did you know you can purchase official 9 Cents Podcast clothing and accessories through acidapparel.com? Of course you did, because you listened to this. And <laughs> assuming you don't cut it off right when I say that's it for another show... You're going to sit through it again. That's right. You can visit 9centspodcast.com website and click on the link titled Apparel. Or visit Asp Apparel and browse their fine selection of original and officially licensed designs. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last FM, Stitcher, and Spotify, so look for us there. You can subscribe to Nine Cents via iTunes by searching iSense, <laughs> iSense, or maybe Nine Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or a comment. Oh yeah, we're also on YouTube, yo. If you would like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com, and if you would like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, which is the greatest, greatest, greater magic episode ever, Hail Satan! <laughs>